Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 434 with Guy Bell. Guy is a cool guy who really walks his talk when it comes to improving organizations. He's been called upon to turn around many organizations, and he has a great philosophy that can make a transformative difference. So I think you'll really dig this one. You'll learn, one, how modern businesses value processes over people, two, the problem with budgets, and three, Guy's process for people building. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, you'll find it on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep434. And while at awesomeatyourjob.com, you can also search the full text transcripts of all 434 episodes in that magnifying glass in the top right. So cool stuff over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Here is Guy's story. Guy Bell is an executive with decades of experience turning around struggling businesses. He's also started up new businesses, acquired and onboarded companies and led greenfield growth. He has held leadership roles in a wide variety of organizations, including equity-backed investments, publicly traded companies, and family-owned businesses. In each of these situations, Guy challenged himself with one simple question, how could I empower my team to meet their full potential? Guy's the author of the book, Unlearning Leadership, which was named one of the 10 leadership books that should be on your radar in 2019 by Inc. Magazine. Big thanks to Guy for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Guy. Guy, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Pete. Oh, well, I'm excited to dig into your good stuff. And But first, I want to dig into your background. You were previously a singer-songwriter. What's the story here? I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I started off, kind of my big dream was as a kiddo, was to get on stages and sing around the world. But ultimately, at that time, it was Minneapolis, and that was the world I was living in. And I had a real fun experience getting a chance to sing and record out at Paisley Park, Prince's Studio, and you know, play in his bars in, in town or his bar at the time and other places, and um, really enjoyed that early experience. And it really has been oddly foundational for my business experience. So that was a, definitely an early kind of love that I figured at 18 years old, what do we know, right? But I knew mm -hmm. then I was going to be a singer for the rest of my life, and here we are. <laughs> well, I'm intrigued. And in what way was that foundational for the rest of your, your business? You know, I kind of started off writing about this when I was getting into management. And I just look at the business world through the lessons of jazz. 
Like there are no such things as mistakes. You just play off of whatever kind of note you're bending if it's not quite where you thought your finger was. And you learn to unlearn. So in jazz and, and when people become like the best at their craft, they no longer play scales. They play the feeling, the mood. They know what key they're in. They understand the, the, the games, the rules of the game. And then they let go of that knowing, if that makes any sense. So that applies to yeah. business beautifully in my experience. Well, so now what I love about this is, is you're sharing some things that might feel a little soft or weird or out there for some, but (laughs) your credentials are pretty smashing when it comes to your work as a turnaround artist. Can you tell us, you know, what do you do there and and what are some of the, the coolest results you've generated there? Yeah, it is strange and it does feel soft. In fact, when I first got into managing, that's usually the feedback I got. It was that I was too soft and I cared too much and I needed to learn to toughen up and all these silly things that didn't make any sense because over the years now, as you said, I've run publicly traded, privately held equity backed companies and I've done it from, you know, taking these businesses that were run by people with a school of thought that said it's not personal, it's just business. And I came in and I thought, well, no, it's, it's wildly personal and it's not just business, right? <laughs> uh, and so most of my turnarounds were really on in this concept of the premise of, you know, who's going to turn this around but the people doing the work and what are the common threads of what businesses miss because they overmanage, they overprocess, they over kind of out of fear and out of a desire to manage risk, kind of they over control behaviors and actions and they create policies to correct behaviors and all these things that feel normal because we have a good hundred years of doing this silly overreach for good reason because people do make mistakes. People do take risks that are unwarranted. But what I've learned, I guess, Pete, and to kind of put it into a few kind of bite-sized chunks is I've learned something called, I, I call it four rules of flight. And if you look at it from a business perspective, there are a certain number of rules that would relate to if you were flying a plane. So as an example, the four rules in flight are weight, lift, thrust, and drag. If you take off and you don't have four rules, but you put together three rules, you have a car that looks like a plane. And if you're in the air and you add a rule, a fifth rule, you will crash. So when you look at business on a micro and then on an individual level, and you understand that process matters, that there there needs to be enough structure, enough of everything, but no more. What happens when we decelerate or we lose control of our business is we don't have enough rules. And then conversely, which I found to be true in almost every turnaround, is people were overmanaging out of fear. When we start failing, we start judging. We start judging, we start applying more rules and regulations and structure. And we lose that ability to say, when people are unleashed to reach their full potential to give outstanding service, to come back and authentically say this process stinks, it's not good, it's not effective, can we do it this way? We don't have those conversations anymore. So that was one of those signature lessons that pretty much universal. Another one quickly, and I'll I'll use the what I've found to be one of the more controversial companies in America today and for me, it's it's a great lesson, and you can be controversial and still do it right, and that is uh, Amazon, day one, day two. He said 20-plus years ago, if we don't run this business every day like it counts, 
day one thinking, we will eventually become a day two company, which means at some point it may take longer for a large company and shorter for a smaller company, but we won't exist because we'll be managing out of fear. We'll be keeping people from people. And those kinds of philosophies have governed for better or worse, depending on how you, if you know anybody there or how they, people perceive their culture, but it's one thing above all else. And that is it's authentic. Uh, he knew that then, and he's applied that year after year after year in his growth, and it's a signature to his success. I've found the same things to be true in every business that I work in, where we get caught up in belief systems that are unproductive, but they keep us from undue risk, and therefore we keep trusting that process more than we do the people, and that equation doesn't work. Wow. Guy, this is riveting stuff, and it really feels like you've got your finger on something quite real and important and sensible in terms of just reactionary with failures and mistakes leads to judgment and to fear and to rules and processes and policies. And so could you maybe share with us a, a story of, of a turnaround you, you went into in terms of where were they kind of in terms of financially and the lay of the land? What did you do? And then what did they end up with uh, financially in terms of results afterwards, just because I have a feeling there's some listeners who think this sounds almost too good to be true. <laughs> Can we put some dollar signs to this, please? Yeah. So if you don't mind, I'll give you a bite of a couple of different oh, sure. situations. So one of the turnarounds, I was brought in, it was equity-backed investment. They were losing money and didn't know to what extent. I was brought in to help them grow the company. And as it turned out, within a month or two, they weren't ready to grow. They were actually ready to fold. And so for the first six months in that business, what we did is we got our arms around, do we have the right people in the right seats? Do we Are we working on the right marketing strategies? And you just go through the nuts and bolts of the business. And we made adjustments to include the CFO who was un willing or incapable, probably a bit of both, to give us timely P&Ls and we were missing elementary parts of the business. So it's really very tactical in that way, mm -hmm. uh, where you just kind of look through all the systems processes. You ask the question of what are we missing? What are you missing that you need to get from us as an investment to improve or as support to get the right information at the right time, accurate, complete, and uh, decision-making ready. So we did that. We turned it around. Uh, at the time, I won't name the equity firm, but they had, were managing $3 billion. We were at small investment they were ready to leave it and walk away because it was frustrating. It was losing money, as I mentioned. We turned it around and sold it for $64 million within two years. And so the keys of that turnaround are signature. And I'll give a couple other examples that play out the same way. I was asked to turn around a nonprofit university, 150-year-old university based out of San Francisco. And when I came in at first, it was a, it was a nonprofit looking to, to sell or exit out of being a nonprofit because it was not having success. And for whatever reason, they believed that somehow selling it was going to magically make it successful as opposed to getting the right management team. So I came in to that organization after several interviews and same thing. We couldn't make payroll. We were an 80, $75 million company, couldn't make payroll. And so I went to the board and just said, look, nothing personal. And it's, it's not my ego saying this. It's really just true. I need to have control of your marketing right now. And uh, at that time, I was hired to help turn around the company, but it was a role where it was a vice president or some senior vice president of operations. Anyway, fast forward, we got the front end fixed, which is usually one of the problems by getting the marketing right-sized and getting the sales process in place. 
that was required to improve results. And in both cases, we got a better cost per successful acquisition and we improved performance broadly over the 10 businesses and specifically by individual because we just looked at the darn data, right? And we didn't go after chasing numbers. We actually built into every person, which is a real shift in thinking in most businesses is they start managing to a number, which is by itself stupid. They're nice people and smart, but they're making a stupid decision. As I um, learned over time, they're some of the smartest people I've worked with that use a budget to kind of quote unquote drive performance as opposed to understanding the input. What is happening by individual salesperson to be effective? And how do we as professionals help each other in that case, an individual improve their performance? If there's five kind of points of workflow, do all five uh, work for that person? Are they effective at all five? And that is the work. And so we have to look at that accurate data every single day, sometimes throughout the day to ensure that we're coaching, developing, understanding our business at the incremental level. So fast forward, all of that to include kind of rebuilding into the talented people that were at that particular model. And actually, this is true in almost every one. The people that were kept from being effective leaders, whatever they were, could be a, just above an individual contributor all the way up to running a business unit. What usually kept them from their potential was threats. People were afraid at the executive level of the critical feedback or whatever that caused this disruption, this disease of, of relationships. And so you just, I went back out and met everyone and, and re-engaged on the human level, rebuilt some trust pretty quickly and unleashed them, you know, just said, look, I trust that you're going to get this done the right way. Let's just do it transparently and together. And uh, there's no judgment. And 18 months later, we sold it. 18 months after selling it, they sold it again for $275 million, I believe. And when I started, it was it should have it could have gone bankrupt in the next three months. So a really good outcome there in both fronts and in, in terms of the first sell and the second sell. I guess I could go on for a few more, but ultimately I could even tell you a story where it didn't work, <laughs> if you'd like. Uh, but when it does work, the basic elements are pretty common. So it is very detail oriented. It is very kind of what is in the weeds of every individual. I use a concept called every person counts, every day counts. And when they don't count, you have one too many people or you have the wrong person. So don't, don't hire one too many people. I don't care how successful you are. Everyone wants to count. So therefore, for crying out loud, why won't I not kind of set the scene to make damn sure they do? Does that make sense? Yes, that's, that's good. That's good. All right. So that is well established in terms of our reporting to some, some true results here from these perspectives and philosophies. And so then I want to hear a little bit about that perspective of not managing to a number, but instead building into a person. Can you unpack that concept for us a bit more? Absolutely. I mean, one of the crimes I was working in a publicly traded company and there was, and this is common, but I'll just use this example. So there was a, a board budget that had cushion. And then there was a top upper management executive plan that had a little less cushion. And then there was an operating budget that had no cushion. <laughs> and in some cases, if we wanted to drive, quote unquote, the result, we made it really difficult to achieve their goals, which by itself is one of the fundamental flaws of why budgets are nothing other than predictive uh, ways of understanding the cash flow for investment. But having said that, that 
kind of mindset of doing that makes it virtually impossible and demoralizing to an operator, often not always. But when it does, that by itself is, is a really silly model to use as a performance model. So I say just throw all that crap away and work on every individual every single day on whatever those process key elements of, of success are, whatever the sales process is, and stay with them. You will get the outcome that you earn by the activities that you produce. You will come to those activities you produce with a kind of on fire, high, kind of more excited approach when you're coached on getting past the routine of memorizing a script or doing what I tell you to do, but instead taking what we talk about that is important because we know it works and making it yours. And that just takes more investment. It takes a little more time. It takes really good listening and studying that person to say, gosh, they stink at the memorized script and their voice, their approach isn't going to work the way I want it to work. So Let's figure out another way to approach this part of that sales funnel communications to ensure that they're authentic, coupled with they're getting a right result for them. And then ultimately, I've learned, I show people the budget, I talk about our goals, and then I teach them how to throw them away in a sense of, you know what the baseline is, now go after every single person every single day. And we always, we, we were over 20% over our budgets on a routine basis when they were decently laid out. And I would fight hard in those situations where I wasn't the one making the decision to ensure that it was rational so that we could actually overachieve when we do what they don't see because that's not how they think about budgets and performance, but we do. And we would outperform them routinely. When it was my decision, I didn't purposely give a laydown in the budget. I just said, here's what we need to accomplish. We need to see some growth in these areas. And then we trained to the fact that we want you to be successful. We want you to exceed what we need to invest, to reinvest, what we want to see out of our growth this year based on macro data. So I hope that's helpful, but it's budgets have a whole host of problems that we need to un kind of unlearn <laughs> and relearn the real value so that we can incrementally build into talent, into the business process, into kind of authentic engagements. And I found that to be difficult to do when people feel like, dang it, I got to get my number. I'm getting on a call every day or every Monday and getting beaten up because my people are not performing the way that they should. And it's all driven around hitting a number versus kind of building the individual up. I see. And so then it sounds like if you're focused mostly on the number, that's not really helpful in terms of having a person improve. So I guess if it's like, hey, I need you to have, uh, I don't know, 40 new customers yeah. and you've got 31, get better. <laughs> Isn't quite as handy as, as digging down. She's like, okay, so, so these are the five activities you need to undertake in order yes. to acquire these customers. Yes. Well, let's take a look at each one of them and, and, and see how it's going. So could you maybe give us an example or of how that's done in practice? Maybe it's with sales or maybe it's with another type of contributor, but uh, like I get a, a taste for a breakdown and, and the process of, of doing some people building in that way. Absolutely. So I'll give you a couple of examples and I'll stay with sales for now. One is I, I took over a company that was losing money. We ended up selling for six times EBITDA, which was a nice exit for a group that was that would have owned it. But they were losing money. Uh, we got we turned it around pretty quickly and we did it on the back of this exact idea. So we were converting 
uh, an inquiry to revenue, basically. I'll be agnostic, so any model can apply their, their own kind of metrics. But we're converting at about 5.3 or 5.4%. And in this business model, there are five numbers and you can play games with them all day long. <laughs> but ultimately, the one you can't play games with is you spent this much money and you have this outcome. And so, so when you we say this money, this outcome, we're talking about like a marketing investment and customer acquisition. Correct. Yes. This investment of $20 million earned uh, 9,525 new customers. So okay. there's an equation there that, and then ultimately in this case turns out to be about a 5.4% ish conversion rate. So that wasn't great, maybe even weak. And then there's another factor where we're buying eyes and ears and interest, but we also want to earn it through relationships, right? So we built a model quickly and we trained on it to talk about the keys to making kind of this process work better. And we budgeted to you say, we, if we don't get any better at that equation, meaning the conversion from a purchase, a cost of acquisition to uh, meaning a cost of a new customer in marketing to a revenue that we uh, made the decision to say, well, let's keep it at the 5.4. We may have put in a, a two tenths of a percent or whatever we did, but something small, we ended up getting to 7.6% purely purely, purely on not focusing on 7.6% or hitting a number. What we did is we shifted the entire process. We did, weren't using the data right. So we put the exact data in. We understood it on an individual basis throughout the day, throughout the week. So every call we had when we reviewed it, we've talked about the building blocks. We didn't talk about, we had them learn to say, if your funnel of five key metrics and are, are working the way you want or aren't, well, what are you doing about them? And what are you doing them about them by individual? And it's just that process of learning to talk about that engagement at a deep level. And as you do that, people are kind of learning new muscles, learning to practice in a little bit more concrete way versus, as you jokingly said, Pete, but it's the truth. I've seen it, unfortunately, too many times where people are like, if you don't hit your number, we're going to have to let you go. And I said, well, what kind of training have you been doing? And most people insist, well, I've done a ton of training. And I said, well, let me sit on the next one. And they think it's training, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not really getting into the weeds of sitting down and listening to that part of the process. So let's say it's a phone call converting to a in-person, converting to a I'm in and they sign a piece of paper saying, I want to do this. And then it converting into revenue, which is they're in and they've stayed for five days in our business and they're excited to be with us, right? So in that business process, we get caught up in too many things that are trying to get to that number because I've got to make sure that eight out of 10 of them show up and that they stay for whatever number of days are for the requirements to hit their number. So getting out of that mindset to say, when you set the right stage, you do it the right way, you sit with people individually and you understand how this works and you get them excited about doing it right. And when they do, you know, and I know the results improve. They may not improve the same for everyone. Of course, they never do almost. <laughs> they improve for that person because you're helping them get better. And once that success happens, which in most sales cycles, if you're unlucky that your sales cycle is a year, then it's pretty difficult. But if your sales cycle is daily, weekly, you know, monthly, you can really shift the thinking quickly just by the evidence alone. But usually people at first resist a little bit because they're the smart person and they want to do it their way or they feel like 
they're a little vulnerable because they've never really gotten into the weeds and sat down with an individual and had to shift their thinking of what should be done because they were good at it before. You should be doing what I tell you to do, not what naturally you're coming to, right? So it's just kind of helping them do that over and over again, measuring how they do it, saying, hey, it looks like you haven't really made any improvements here. Let's talk about it. And you kind of go through it again. <laughs> and then when they have a success, then you give them the praise and you tell them they deserve to be here to, to hear. And that is it's working. So stay the course and they get a couple wins and now they're heroes. A few cases, one case in particular, there's a guy in Ohio that was mathematically successful and yet just under his number because he was managing to numbers. So he wasn't my direct employee, but I, I brought a team out to sit down with them and we walked through each of his team members and, and their performance and we talked about what's working and not working. And he felt threatened at first because he, he felt like, well, gosh, you know, guy, I can see what you're getting up in the business. Yeah. He said, <laughs> I've seen, I can see what the company does. Why are you coming here and talking to me? And so after we got done, he had his numbers for the next six months. <laughs> So, and it wasn't about hitting the numbers. It was about don't stare at the number because you just miss it all the time. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. But what's so intriguing here is that this doesn't sound like revolutionarily brilliant. It's not. It's kind of like <laughs> this is sort of what we've always should have been doing. Correct. But sure enough, it really is cool. I, this brings me back to one of my favorite cases when I was consulting at Bain & Company. I didn't think this would be a fun case, but it really was quite fun. It, it was uh, as, There were some call centers, and they had a problem with attrition. The, the call center representatives were, were quitting way too fast. Now, mm -hmm. attrition is high in that industry because that's not a really fun job for most people. Uh, but, uh, but it was way higher for our client than even sort of the industry norms and standards. And mm -hmm. so we followed a lot of the same steps in terms of first, we had to clean up the data. Like, we didn't have reliable attrition data and so no one believed it or trusted it or mm. regarded it so it could always be sort of just put to the side like oh you can't trust those numbers mm. it's like all right well let's make it so we can trust them and so that was kind of my role is like we were just getting down into these details all right day by day every day someone is going to tell me at each of these six call centers how many people quit <laughs> all right and we are gonna get it like month by month this is what the attrition numbers look like and then all of a sudden it's like hey you had a great month what'd you do it's like oh well we, we tried this incentive thing it's like you know what we realized we had some some supervisors who were real nasty <laughs> and mm, people were nice. quitting them way faster than the other supervisors so mm. we coached them or we replaced them and yeah it was just sort of like there wasn't like one magical Correct. silver bullet we discovered in terms of, oh, my gosh, people love, you know, candy Fridays. <laughs> and, and, and they're very motivated when there's candy. No, it was just lots of little things like, hey, sure. what are you doing? Oh, that's a good idea. Maybe we should do some of that. It's, it's yeah. like, hey, great job. Those numbers are really moving somewhere. And they trusted it. And they had visibility because more and more people. It was kind of fun. They, they kept asking to get added to my list. I was like, well, sure. Thank you. I am the... Uh, the keeper of the attrition numbers, which is funny because we're an outside consultant. Yes. Like they didn't have their own attrition numbers they could trust. And so <laughs> it's amazing how I hear you. I guess the resistance is one, it's a little bit more time. It's a little bit more detail that you yes. get into. And maybe an executive doesn't feel that he or she should have to get into this level of weeds or, or whatever. Um, but you're saying, in fact, you do. That's yeah, how it's done. To. Yeah, yeah. You have to. And, and what everyone has in common, even the smartest of the companies 
with PhD analysts and you know people that you used to work with and probably you is just fantastic uh, at gathering data. But are we getting the right data in the right way? Are we testing what? Are all the all the links broken, or, or are they are they not broken? And can we do it? Does that person know, or does someone be watching to say when we're pulling data from fifteen sources? Inevitably, in every ninety days, if you don't test it, something breaks, and all of a sudden you have to visually catch it versus having some way of making sure that your data is your life. And when it's accurate. It does change results, ironically. So it's not an either or. It's not a very soft thing, but it is the beginning. You have to make sure you're looking at the right information to your point, exactly to your point. And you said something that is just absolutely the truth. And what I find to be kind of fascinating is we over-engineer and we overthink so many things to the point where, well, we got to figure out a way to save on costs and get a better process and let's go analyze. We brought in companies like your old company uh, and we spent 10 million bucks and, and we learned the same thing. We kind of, some of us already knew not to say that it wasn't smart. It was smart, but you can't decentralize a few things, but you can on the numbers. Meaning if it's a high touch business component of the business process, you've got to know the difference on some level and you've got to make a bet on something. And I would say that's where we lose traction often in business around efficiency is when we overthink the power of the human potential, the power of the human being. And we try to find a kind of a Tayloristic Ford <laughs> model back a hundred plus years ago that now is agile workflow and all the amazing feats we have now of, of just outstanding process analysis and distribution of this great wisdom, but it only goes so far, if that makes sense. And so at some point, you have to be human again. <laughs> you have to kind of really understand the power of that detail showing up in a conversation in a kind of lengthy understanding of you know, who we are in this. And then it's very easy to discern. Do you fire someone? Do you say goodbye? Do you move them somewhere else? Or do you stay the course? And to that story with that 5.3% go into the 7.6%, was it kind of the same kind of a concept? Like there wasn't one or two silver bullets like, no. aha, we just have to do this, but rather you may be dozens of tiny discoveries associated with when you follow up, don't say this, but do say that. Is it, was it like that? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, I replaced a few people as, you know, often happens, but in this case, one of the most brilliant minds I've ever worked with because he could do all the coding. He could study all the data. He could go in and write code. He could get into the back end of the website. All these things that were important that you know, but I, did, I couldn't do it myself. I don't have all those skills, but he did. He would trust the data at the cost of the people. And then I had a salesperson that would trust the people at the cost of the data. So yes, it was a dance of saying, and we all learned in a very fun way when we kind of respected each other's gifts and talents. We learned that it's really this dance of it all matters. If you take any one of these things out, it does hurt the business. Uh, and, you know, in some cases, I know how they perform after I leave. And I know a little bit, not always, but often about what happens once I move on. And when it, we stay the course of getting better and better at that, there have been multiple exits since I've left some companies and that's exciting. But often what happens is they go back to a pattern of behavior that is all data or all hitting a number or all kind of one dimensional because what should be this way there, it is there, therefore it should be here. And they oversimplify because, and then God only knows why they come to those conclusions, but it's wrong. It, mm -hmm. it does take a whole host of different subtle elements and the data will 
point, but it will not do, as you know. But you got to get good data to point because it does help a ton. All right. Well, so given this thorough backdrop, <laughs> did we establish <laughs> what are the four rules of flight? Did we cover that? What's one, two, three, four? Uh, we list thrust and drag. And, and, and that's for business, flight. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's the flight. In business, if you look at it at a micro and macro level, every business has one thing in common when it fails, and that's two many policies to correct behaviors. Free people, and the only way you can do it, there's only one way, is you have to trust that people are going to make mistakes and that the mistake isn't going to kill the business. That Therefore, it can be one less until it's that business killer. Again, back to there's no one solution. Every industry will have different rules. But if someone doesn't pay attention to that, Pete, it is the beginning of the end. So I would argue one of the most important positions possibly in business is not someone that's an executive or a manager or even an individual contributor. They're all important, but maybe the most important thing to learn about four rules of flight is someone needs to say, I give a shit, excuse my language, about four rules of flight in our business model, whether it be oil and gas or education or retail, and it's digital and ground both. Someone needs to ensure that we're staying true to the fact that we want everyone, we want to make the biggest decisions possible at the closest point to a customer that we can. And if we stay true to that, someone better govern it. (laughs) Someone better tell the lawyers that are saying, no, 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 we had that risk and it cost us, you know, X number of dollars because we had three lawsuits based on that behavior. Therefore, we're creating a rule. And then we kill the potential of making a mistake for sure, but we also kill the potential of changing a customer situation for sure. We measure the wrong things. It is gets ridiculously complex when you try to measure all of this additional kind of wonder state of what happens when you have don't know the unintended consequence. You may take your 55 lawsuits, which is usually what I walk into, and bring them down to zero, but at what cost? Yeah. And the 55 lawsuits came from, in their minds, too few rules. Not always the case, but often there are a few too few rules, or they're not the right rules, and perhaps they're just simply bad training. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps it's you're not setting the right stage to say when you have the freedom to make that decision, individual contributor working on a customer engagement, and they say, as a customer, I'm not satisfied with this experience, and you say, Well, let me help you resolve it. When you have that power, do you really know how to resolve it? And the answer is often no, but don't give up on it. Get better at resolving it uh, so that the customer gets a just-in-time answer. The employee gets to expand their talents and contribute at a higher level and therefore feel really good about solving something that was uh, this day and age, we often say, my manager needs to talk to you and then no manager's there. You know, all the goofiness that takes away their power. That's just crazy. So... No, I hear you there. All right. So the four rules of flight then is not rather, hey, here are four key principles, but rather that concept that in flight, there are exactly four rules. And thusly, in your operation, you should have exactly the right number of rules. Not too many, not too few. And most have too many. So we talk about budget troubles. What are some other rules or policies or traditional practices that you often see just need to go? Don't create a culture. There's no such thing. There are people that have PhDs in some form and they consider themselves to be culture experts. What I've sadly learned, because I've made that mistake more than once, is a culture is a reflection of its leaders and is, is ultimately, even on a macro scale, a reflection of all of us. So we co-create culture. Culture is 
primarily driven in companies by behaviors at the top. And the irony, if there was four rules kind of of lessons, four rules of flight, it would be one, too many policies, two, your thoughts need to match, your words need to match your actions. And when they're misaligned, your business will fail. It may not fail tomorrow. It may not fail, obviously, but you need to be aligned. And most companies choose to have a boardroom mentality, meaning what we think. And in the boardroom, most executives are less than kind, but they're kind around results that are positive, but not always. <laughs> but they get down fire about you know hitting our numbers, hitting our quarterly results, whatever these things are. And then we go sell the customer on the other side, a story of our business that makes everyone, tries to make everyone feel good. And then we go tell our employees a story that an HR department or an OD group comes in and says, you know, well, they're not too happy. Let's go create a happiness poster. That's not the way it works. And it may be a good selling point for a minute or two, a year or two, or five years or 10 years. But ultimately, either don't have any of that crap and walk your walk, meaning if you're an owner or a company that's got a stable top management, you it starts with them. They need to be able to say, what do we believe in firmly? What are we communicating to our team? And so they can believe in it with us. And it'll inform our execution. If we do that beautifully, elegantly, uh, whether regardless of if we're kind of driven and we're dehumanizing or we're not the greatest people, people in the world, then damn it, stay the course. <laughs> Be who you are as a company, as an individual group of owners, uh, leaders, whatever that structure is at the top. And then I would say conversely, another really big mistake is not empowering everyone to be become an expression of what that is. Once you have kind of a clear definition of by practice of how, you know, you look at your customers, how you're kind of looking at one another and, and, and trusting in the conversation and empowering or not, right? So whatever those variables are, that is the culture. And then from that place, really, you know, how do we get it into the individual contributor a way that they can relate to it However they are, wherever they sit, whatever they do, they matter. They have to matter. As I mentioned, if it's one too many people, then don't have them there. But if they're there, they matter. <laughs> so the culture is their expression in that exact same way with a different impact, but an impact all the same. So that's one of those rules where I, it's routinely the case. I'll use an example. I write about this. Uh, you know, you look at a company that everyone would have bet that 20 years later, Whole Foods would have been the most lovely place to work and the most beautiful culture because of how it began. You know, it was the first of its kind to on scale to do what it did. And then you look at Amazon who purchased them, who was not known for being the most interesting guy to work with in terms of, you know, happy culture and, you know, feeling good about ourselves, but he's executed at a very high level and for better or worse, to my knowledge, they're pretty well aligned. And so two years ago when I was watching this acquisition go through and I kept thinking, because I know a lot of Whole Foods folks and I, I'm a consumer of both products, I quit consuming from Whole Foods because it just became an experience that I felt as a customer was out of alignment. And I consumed more, frankly, from Amazon who... I felt like I, I saw, I read the articles and I knew some of the backstory about what it was like to work there and this stuff, but it, but it was, it was authentic. It was, you know, no one, no one walked in wondering what the experience was going to be like. And I remember reading an article that the founder and owner of, at the time of Whole Foods said, you know, I met with Jeff Bezos and we're excited to come aboard. And he said, really, the difference that I learned from Jeff and his company was that I cared too much about people. And I thought, Oh, dude, you have it totally wrong. 
Mm. <laughs> you just you had it on a bunch of posters that you cared about people. Uh, you didn't actually care about people. And I'll give you one more example uh, of that exact lesson. I was running a, a publicly traded company, and the CEO I was with, on the executive team, the CEO came up in front of everyone, the management team, and said, uh, you know, guys, we've got to get this turned around. We need to get people to feel like we care about them. <laughs> and I said, then just care about them. And he said, well, what's the point? What, are you, what, what point are you making? I said, you said you want them to feel like we care about them. Then don't say that. Don't care about them. But if you really want to care about them, just care about them. And he looked at me like, who are you? <laughs> and we got to know each other well after that. But that's what's happening is I want you to feel like you have a voice. Do you want them to have a voice? Well, no. <laughs> do you really want to respect them? Oh, yeah, maybe. Well, no, either do or you don't. You don't get to choose. <laughs> you know, and so that kind of thought process crops up and then all of a sudden it becomes Whole Foods failing miserably uh, because the thousandth time you say you care, but you don't care. People trust their limbic resonance. Their body screams, man, this dude is not here for me. He is not the person that created this company. I'm sure he's a fantastic guy on a personal level, but he got caught up in something that was a concept, not embedded into the fabric of that company in a way that everyone learns over time to trust the truth beyond our words, right? So aligning our thoughts, our words, and our actions, critically important to everyone counts, not some people, everyone. If you leave that, you're in trouble. And then one, it always starts with you. Always. Not sometimes, not most of the time. So that means every janitor, every kind of entry-level employee, Everybody counts. And in that, it starts with you. You can change a company. You can change an experience. You can change a process. You have to do it different ways, but ultimately, you have to come in and say, I'm not going to blame it on anybody. I'm not, and if I do that, I'm going to leave. But if I'm going to be here, I'm going to invest fully in what I have control or power over. And then I'm going to try to influence what I can see, feel, and experience. And I'm going to do it in the most positive, affirming way, but I'm going to do it. If we can get to those four points, you know, four rules of life, too many policies, three, our thoughts, words, and actions match. And then two, everyone counts. And one, it starts with me. That's probably the closest version I can get to. <laughs> using that four concept yeah. uh, to simplify it. Well, that's good. Thank you. And so when it comes to the caring, yes. and I'd love to get your take on fundamentally, what is your top tip or suggestion when it comes to caring? Wow. I love that. I would say the worst thing we can do is create the candy days and the and the lunch luncheons where we go take a bunch of pictures and post them and make everyone feel happy in a concept. I think show up as you and invite other people to show up as them and let the messiness of life play its role. People are messy. Uh, we have bad days and we, we don't have separate lives, whether we like it or not. We're not a husband, a wife, uh, a spiritual person and, you know, in this bucket and then a dad in that bucket. That doesn't work that way. And so what does it mean to truly invite other people into their fullness to include, you know, some of the mess? And in that, you earn some trust in that people start to kind of live into their fullness in a way that does matter and does get results, but ultimately you're doing it to humanize the experience. You're doing it because you care. And when you give a damn and you authentically give a damn, and if you don't, practice, practice caring, practice listening, practice hearing everything, and then shift it if you want to go to business and say, well, let's, let's talk about a business process. I saw this going on. What do you think? 
and you're four levels above them walking around the office and they say, well, I don't know. And say, well, I really do want to know you. Let's talk about it a little bit. And they'll listen and they tell you their thought. And once in a while, you just get totally blown away <laughs> by something that's not in their backyard. And you earn some trust because you care enough to say, I'll bet you have an opinion. I'll bet you see this from a different angle than I do. And then ask mm -hmm. and let goofiness and silliness and stuff get in the way. But ultimately, you're freeing people up to be everything to include transformative, to include passionate, caring person toward the customers, towards each other for the good of the company and the good of the community. That's good. Guy, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Boy, I don't have a list. So no, I'm good. This is fun. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Jeez, I like Buckminster's Fuller's quote, and I, I'm not going to get it exact, but it's something to the uh, extent that to really change how something is it was working, you have to start over. You can't just add on. And so I use it a lot at the end of my speeches. Uh, of course, I, I, I didn't memorize it, but uh, I think Buckminster Fuller, pretty much everything he kind of has come to and shared that we're now aware of his, uh, his lexicon of ideas is helpful. I don't tend to use too many quotes though having said that because i do like the idea of more expanding into kind of what is the complexity beyond the quote <laughs> mm -hmm. the quote's point but I, I like the rich complexity to that end uh, i wish i had better ones to tell, share with you but I, I do find the ones where it's teaching us to free up our thoughts you know there's all kinds of wonderful thinkers that have over the years over the centuries talked about what does it mean to be a free thinker so i enjoy anyone in the field of philosophy and or economics that talk about free markets and free thought. I'll leave it at that. Oh, cool. And how about a favorite book? Uh, a couple of them. I, recently, I read The Innovation Blind Spot, and uh, it's really a fantastic read. I also read uh, a book written, Utopian for Realists, which is a fascinating young guy from Europe who is looking at sociological history and, and kind of challenging uh, modern thought through data. A uh, very smart guy. And then I've read the a couple books uh, by Yuval, Sapiens, and Omidius that are uh, fascinating reads. And how about a favorite habit? Something you do that helps you be awesome at your job. I go to bed ensuring that I free myself of the day. I used to stay awake all night when I had challenges uh, at work or whatever the case would be. And I've become a practice, become a practice of letting go and playing in that field. And then waking up in my first half an hour of every day as a practice of quieting and, and reflecting on the joy of the day. And I walk into it, then converting that into if I'm working or at the client or speaking, I'll turn it into kind of more mantras and thoughts throughout the day that support the kind of day I want to have. And is there a particular nugget you share with clients or readers or audience members that really seems to connect and resonate with them and they repeat it back to you often? Oh, you know, I think the the message of learning to let go of what you know is such a rich and complex uh, story. But when I get into the details of let go and know, people begin to resonate. And yeah, so I get feedback on that message. Another is very specifically when people ask for concrete approaches. I talk about policies from the lens of if it's a rule, make sure everybody knows it's non-negotiable. If it's a policy, make sure you're writing it towards something you want to accomplish, not away from something you don't want to see happen. And if it's a best practice, put it out there and don't make it a point until you need to. And 
I've had lots of groups that are HR centric, like how simple that is. So that one's red, meaning if you want to color code them, color code it so that you know those are non-negotiable. They're laws by governing bodies, whatever it may be. Yellows are policies. They're meant to be broken. You need to learn how to break them no more than, you know, whatever your rule is, 5% of the time. And if you do, have a conversation. And three, we put out great ideas that your peers have used over the years, and we keep refreshing that. It's a nice, simple way to kind of put some meat on the bones of how to, you know, simplify the business without dumbing it down. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? GuyPBell.com is my website. And uh, you can reach me at my email at GuyPierceBell1 at gmail.com. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? When you get people right, you get business right, is, is really the critical reminder is we are in a time of the fourth industrial revolution. Let's do everything we can to make that work for us. And I've seen it both ways where it's been transformative around working for the company and for the people. And I've seen it actually used improperly. So look at the people, even through the lens of these outstanding uh, AI solutions and deep learning, and we'll get the best of both worlds. Guy, this has been a treat. Thank you so much for taking this time and good luck with the turnarounds you're doing and, and the adventures you're having and the people you're touching. This has been a real good time. It's been a pleasure, Pete. Thank you. Appreciate it. I really appreciate it, guys, take that you can't just keep yelling about a number and how it needs to be better. <laughs> it takes a little bit more effort in terms of, all right, let's, let's really get a clear understanding of what we're talking about here. What's the true data? Is it accurate? Is it valuable? Do we believe it? And, and what's going on? What are the subcomponents associated with arriving at this number? And what are the best practices? And what are you doing? And what's working? What's not working? What's working for others? And there's just no shortcut or substitute for taking that time and, and getting into it in order to really discover the underlying causes of a number being a number and to bring about better performance. So I think it's a helpful reminder if you've ever felt frustrated that a number isn't what it should be, instead of just uh, pounding your, your fists or, you know, rehashing it or amping up the pressure to say, well, hey, let's really take a look at, at why it is the way it is and what we can do about it. And to take that time makes all the difference. So big thanks to Guy for sharing that wisdom. Hope you dug that and more. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F434. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It is a, a combo. We got Christine Lilly and John Gillis. And Christine is a World Cup soccer champion. And she's learned a thing or two about teamwork and how to do it well. And John is sharing some of his expertise on the, the clinical research side of things to bring it all together. Hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.